Welcome to the Farm One Podcast, where we uncover local food stories, sustainable living, and hidden stories behind our food and agriculture system so that we can be a little bit more thoughtful about our food. My name is Ina Tubalaiha, and today I am joined by Rob and Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. It's uh had a had a had a day off yesterday and uh we we did some wonderful things outdoors which is always nice so uh um so I'm feeling good feeling good how are you doing pretty good the rain is a little bit tough today and the internet reliability always feels pre- precarious when it rains in this area so I'm a little bit worried <laughs> Rob, how about you? <laughs> is that just superstition or is it like a real thing? I'm curious. Are oh, you... it's a real thing. When the wind oh, blows so... too hard, the internet goes out and then it comes back immediately. Wow, are, it's are 2021, on... folks. <laughs> <laughs> what internet service are you on out there? Optimum. Mm. Huh. Okay, that's like a non-endorsement of Optimum then. <laughs> definitely not sponsored by them. Um, interestingly enough, with the new farm, we're looking into some of these internet services that are provided uh, through satellite, right, Michael? Like uh, It's sort of fixed wireless. So it's um, they go from station to station, and it's not a technology I have any experience with. I think it is. it might be satellite-based. I'm not I'm not entirely oh, sure. Or maybe but, there's like a ground station or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and what they've got to do is mount a, a receiver and a transmitter on our roof. And I guess they link this network between customers all over the city. Mm. So uh, it's okay. been around for a while, but it's, uh, like I said, I have no experience with that type of technology. So I'm, I'm very curious if it'll work. <laughs> if during a storm, it'll uh, the internet will cut in and out. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, um, I had a I had a good weekend. I um, popped to the farmers market in the drenching rain, um, and got some garlic scapes and uh, green garlic and all kinds of garlic stuff. And then uh, made dinner for a group of people, one of whom could not eat garlic. So there was a big <laughs> challenge there, <laughs> but it was quite good. We did a really. I had a sort of bumper crop of smallhold mushrooms, and I made um, some. Uh, well, I did all kinds of things. I did like a toast. And then on top of it, um, I made this sort of super mushroomy, creamy sauce. Um, I roasted some mushrooms. I made like a mushroom tea using some of that chanterelle powder that we gave people last week and some porcinis and uh, some shiitake stems and basically turned that into a sort of cashew cream that was like the most mushroomy thing ever. And then topped that with some um, grilled like maitake and, um, other mushrooms. So it was like very, very mushroomy and that went down pretty well. And, um, and then I, uh, well, I did other stuff anyway, it it was nice to have people for dinner, um, and to have a, you know, face-to-face conversation given that we're all vaccinated. So, uh, so what a pleasure, but yeah, um, coming into this week, we've got so much, so much stuff going on on the farm. It's like literally, almost insane um given that we're trying to build out this new facility we've got another exciting secret project going on uh we're trying to you know think about how we tell the story of farm one to new people as we meet more people and i seem to get just more and more people reaching out now um it's i i kind of forgot i guess like before covid we would literally 
you know, every week someone would kind of reach out and say, hey, I'm this interesting person. Can I like connect and come and visit the farm and have a tour or something? And and so a lot of our time was spent doing that stuff and that will disappear during COVID. And it's nice to have it back. It's nice to get these random connections back and, um, you know, meet people who are doing interesting things in food. So, um, so yeah, lots of, lots of exciting things going on. That mushroom dish sounds delicious. It was, it was so, okay. It was so delicious that one of the guests who stayed later until about 1 a.m., asked me to meet, make another serving of it. And I did <laughs> at 1 a.m. And it was it was great. Yeah, it was really, really good. So I was kind of inspired because like in the um in the podcast episode um of how I built this where Daniel Hume talks about his um turning EMP into plant based. Like he mentioned a, a mushroom dish that they were working on with uh roasted uh royal trumpet mushrooms, I think, mm. where they kind of took a mushroom broth and then like glazed the mushroom while it was roasting in the broth and so getting that kind of extra umami so i was kind of like i'm I'm just really into like double triple mushroom kind of stuff you know where you take some aspect of a mushroom and you like combine it with another aspect and then you cook it in a different way um anyway this is not the mushroom podcast I feel like this decade is the is is going to be the uh, the decade of mushrooms, you know, leading into it. I think things like lion's mane and, and other things were kind of a little bit underground. It was like you know you had to know it kind of thing, the secret door knock. But now it's like going to get yeah. commercial. Yeah, hundred percent. I even came across some mushroom chocolate. I went to Air One in LA a couple of weeks ago, and they had like a lion's mane chocolate, um, and they had a. Oh, maybe reishi or something. Unfortunately, the chocolate itself wasn't that good. They didn't, it just, you know, there's a real art to making really, really, really good chocolate. And um, so it was like an interesting product, but it wasn't satisfying me in terms of a chocolate. And so, I don't know, someone out there needs to do better. Anyway, mushroom talk. We can totally have an entire podcast episode about mushroom recipes. (laughs) Great. I look forward to it. Awesome. Um, well, today our, we're actually going to be doing a deep dive into grocery delivery and other food delivery services. We're going to understand how this all works and some companies that are doing some work on this. Michael, do you want to start us off with some trends on grocery delivery? Yeah, yeah. So Core Research published their U.S. online grocery survey of 2021. Um, and, you know, no surprise, they looked at um what happened last year during COVID. And I'm sure many of you who are listening sort of experienced uh, grocery delivery uh, services like Instacart and others sort of really came to the fore on that. And uh, places like Whole Foods and others were doing a lot of curbside and delivery. The headline here is that more than one third of US online grocery shoppers will keep their e-commerce habit post pandemic. Um, more than a quarter of the shoppers said that they expect to buy groceries online more frequently than they did during the pandemic. And roughly 30% of the respondents said that they'll shop slightly less frequently or much less frequently post-pandemic. And 6.3% said they'll stop buying groceries online altogether. So there's a lot there, but what they're saying is those that did shop there's a good amount of them that will likely stay shopping online. Um, and uh, the, the ones who are saying that they won't 
do their shopping online are that's a very small percentage um which i think is 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 notable um and online grocery shoppers age 30 to 44 are most likely to continue with grocery e-commerce which did kind of surprise me a little bit in that you know there's an older generation there i suppose there's a bit of a gap um in uh comfort with technology and and the internet and maybe there's room for improvement there with uh with the groceries um but uh uh, roughly 63% of them saying that they'll continue online grocery shopping at the same or, or increased frequency after the pandemic. I think that's also pretty, pretty significant. And in, I think, many communities, obviously, that's maybe the largest group, the largest demographic. Uh, it's certainly the one that is often most sought after um, uh, by brands because uh, or within those age ranges, obviously, you have maybe a bit more money. Uh, it's always puzzled me why brands go after the younger consumers so much. I'm like, they don't have that much money. Anyway, um, I suppose eventually they become 30 to 44 year olds. Uh, home delivery yeah, it's like, was it's like cigarettes, right? You got to get them yeah. young so that they, you know, get addicted. That's the, that's the whole thing. I yeah, yeah. is looking horrified that I mentioned that. I'm, I'm definitely not advocating for that, but that is the classic technique, right? That is a classic technique. It's horrible. Um, home delivery was the default option for online grocery purchase. The survey found 56% of respondents who had bought groceries online over the previous 12 months had their orders delivery, delivered, whereas 43% chose curbside. Um, and last point here before we pop into some discussion, 42.7% use same-day shipping service. Thank you, Amazon. And more than one quarter used faster two-hour delivery service. That's pretty high. I suppose there's maybe a lot of impulse buys. Maybe somebody made some mushroom M&Ms or something. This actually makes a lot of sense when you consider that Corsite also found Amazon to be the most shopped retailer, followed by Walmart. Uh, in the second spot. Uh, and Amazon offers two-hour grocery to its Prime members and Walmart Plus offers same-day delivery. So there's a lot to digest there, but you know, what CoreSite found is that people are uh, were shopping online and it sounds like that's going to stay. What does this mean for grocery? I know, what, what, what do you think? I'm not surprised by these trends, and this makes a lot of sense, especially when I hear the perspectives from a lot of our members. The experience of grocery shopping through the pandemic, it, there was so much uncertainty around that. And it makes sense that you would have to seek options like online grocery shopping to be able to get some of those essentials. So I completely understand that. And once you get a taste of that convenience, that feeling that, oh my goodness, this was so easy and I can do this, can, I can continue doing this. Of course, you know, it makes sense why some people would continue to do this. But it does make me a little bit concerned. You know, I think that this culture of instantaneous food and convenience, I don't see where it can become positive at the end. Like, I, I see that the road leads to someplace concerning that food shouldn't be instantaneous all the time. And there was a lot of work and, you know, the idea of grocery shopping that still has to be done. It's just being displaced somewhere else. So I, it complete, it makes complete sense to me of why this trend is ha 
happening. I'm just a little bit worried about where this future is going to lead us. Yeah, it kind of makes me think a little bit of, of uh, as, as animals in evolution, right? I'm going to, this is going to be relevant, trust me. Um, like the most effective species um, tend to conserve energy and reproduce, right? Like that is sort of, you know, like, so if a shark can have a meal over here or a meal a mile away, the shark's going to choose the meal over here, like any time, like it just makes sense. And any animal that doesn't do that is like not going to, you know, survive to reproduction, right? And so we're sort of obviously hardwired, hardwired for convenience. That, that's just a thing. And, and that's played itself out in the food world over the past 50 years in terms of obesity and diabetes and other lifestyle related to disease, because uh, instinctively as humans, if we can choose a high calorie food that satisfies us immediately, we will do that like regardless of the nutritional benefits, right? And so I, I sort of feel like the same thing is kind of happening with convenience around food um, shopping in that if I can sit at home and click a button and get something within two hours, like, you know, that's going to satisfy sort of 80% of my needs as a consumer. And so I'm going to do that, you know, and companies that enable us to sort of be lazy tend to, if they can get their logistics, right, like they tend to be successful. And Amazon, you could look at Amazon, uh, the history of Amazon as a company that has successfully managed to serve consumers who are lazy, you know, uh, which we all are, like, it, it's one of the intrinsic traits that we have that makes us successful as a species. So you know, when I see these kind of trends, I'm like, I'm not surprised either. You know, if you can, if you can sit at home and get something within a couple of hours and it's reliable and pretty low stress on your part, like it's, you know, it's so hard to fight against that. And I think that, you know, farmers markets and local stores and CSAs are really trying to, you know, it's a hard battle to get attention uh, when you've got a company like Amazon, um, you know, trying to, trying to satisfy that convenience. So I think that's sort of one thing that I think about is like, it's so hard to reverse that trend. And, and even if you stack up all these reasons to like shop local, like, oh, you get fresher food, oh, you get contact with real people, oh, you get to support um, labor in the economy, you get to, you know, interact and, um, and also reduce waste, right? Like all of that stuff, it's for some people, it just doesn't add up, you know? And then and then if you mix in pricing as well, if the price online is the same as in the store or less, like, you know, how can you compete? Like certainly in Manhattan, right? Buying from Amazon Fresh is pretty much, it's, it's definitely cheaper than the local grocery store. And unfortunately the local grocery store in Manhattan is normally not that great either. You know, it's overpriced and not that fresh sometimes. And, you know, so, so, so hard to compete. Um, yeah, so those are some thoughts that I have, which is sort of like slightly depressing, isn't it? It's like, how do you even fight back against this trend? Um, and the one thing I think that I've found consistently that people will talk about, though, is plastic waste, where if you know, a lot of people have switched to Fresh Direct or Amazon for convenience, and you know, for instance, Fresh Direct, their bags are supposed to be reusable bags that you return, but they don't pick them up anymore because like supposedly because of COVID, which was ridiculous in the first place because, you know, the fomite spread on surfaces of COVID was minimal at best and has been proven to be, you know, basically not a big deal. 
Um, so I don't know. I feel like it's sort of an excuse for them right now. But but yeah, everyone I talk to who has used online delivery services now, maybe I've got a sort of <clears throat> like a, a sort of very particular group of people I talk to, but plastic waste is a big, big thing that comes up. Like it came up yesterday, right, Michael, or two days ago when we were talking to um, some architects, it was like, yeah, like the convenience is there, but I feel awful about all the plastic waste. Um, and so that may be, I don't know if people can start to care about that more and more, maybe that's a little sort of wedge that can be driven into um, online grocery to improve this. But yeah, it's a pretty, pretty tough spot right now. Well, maybe I'll take the counter to this argument, which is, you know, I, and I think maybe Jeff Bezos wrote this in his in his final shareholders letter, CEO of Amazon, that um, I suppose the argument that they'll make is that uh, uh, this will free up so much more of your time. I mean, personally, and you know, this is a survey of one. Um, it's not my favorite thing to do to go grocery shopping. It's a pain in the ass to get out there if uh, you go at the wrong time of the day and you can't, you don't always have the flexibility to be able to to dictate when you go. Um, getting there is a pain in the ass. Getting back can be a pain in the ass. Um, once you're there, the experience may or may not be great. I, I feel very fortunate in that we found an exceptional store that that uh, has, I'd say, 90% of everything we need. Um, uh, and it, it can be hit or miss. So that experience in itself, I mean, the grocery shopping experience, aside from getting way bigger, um, probably hasn't changed that much in the last 50, 60, I don't know how many years here in America and, and in other places in the world. Um, you get your selection of produce. I think Walmart, for example, introduced organics um, available nationwide only quite recently. So the selection hasn't been great. So that whole experience has been has been terrible. And the checkout experience, I mean, I think people are trying to, grocery stores are trying to fix that with self-checkout. Um, you know, there have been rumors of, of uh, RFID checkout where you just roll your shopping cart through and allegedly all of the sensors will pick everything up. I've not seen that rolled out at scale anywhere. Um, so that whole experience is, is, is not great. So, you know, along comes Instacart and uh, uh, Amazon and, and Walmart Plus and, and these types of services solves a lot of those problems, right? So, okay, it maybe frees up a couple hours of the week for you. And does that mean necessarily mean that you're lazy or, you know, I suppose what you do with that time defines whether or not you're lazy or not. Uh, if you've got your two hours freed up during the week, if you're making good use of it. Um, but, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, it, it makes me think of driving when you put it that way, like driving is such a waste of cognitive power, isn't it? For yeah. everybody, like it's such a, it's a difficult thing to do. It's dangerous. You can't do other things while you're doing it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, I certainly see a point, like it is a waste of time for people to be rushing to the grocery store, making unnecessary trips in their car, all that kind of stuff. I guess like the, the problem I have is that a lot of these online grocery service, services come packaged with like poor um, treatment of employees, like lots of plastic waste, like displacing local businesses, like, like supporting um, a supply chain which encourages like non-interesting foods and all that kind of stuff as well so that's like i guess that's my sort of issue is that laziness gets sort of rewarded with bad stuff 
Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so that's that's an interesting sort of and an important point for us with this because all right, let's trace this, right? I think pre-pandemic outside of of um big cities like New York, I mean, I don't think Fresh Direct really exists anywhere else. I think Safeway had Peapod, I think that was nationwide, and there were some other delivery services. You know, previous to this, back in, we were just talking about it before we started recording, the early version of this um, was Cosmo out of San Francisco, and then you know, they they went through the whole dot com roller coaster, and then Webvan was the big sort of disastrous take before Fresh Direct did it, where I think they had raised something like some crazy amount of hundreds of millions, which was a lot back in those days, um, and built out a large facility in Oakland, um, and they all went away, and you know we're starting to see this resurgence. So. Some other news there, Instacart expands to 7-Eleven delivery nationwide. 7-Eleven is very different now from like when I grew up. And Rob, I think in Japan, it's like a totally different thing, right? You can get like a proper meal at 7-Eleven. Well, I don't know if I want to say a proper meal. You can get a meal. Like I, it's, I, convenience stores in Japan are like beautiful places though. They're sparkling clean. Like the service is great. Like the snack selection is fantastic, but I, I don't want anyone to think that they're serving like super healthy food there. It's just like, there's a there's a sort of genre of Japanese cuisine, which is um, foreign food reinterpreted in Japan. So you, you'll have like, for instance, um, hamburger, which is like a hamburger patty and it will be in some kind of sauce. And that, that might be served with spaghetti. And like, that's what you might get from a 7-Eleven late at night or something um anyway sidetrack but but hey well also oh, a lot also, of no go on a, a lot of single use uh packed uh plastic oh. everything's wrapped in plastic yeah it's paradise for plastic yeah yeah <laughs> although but i've got to say like the garbage separation in japan is pretty strict and i i don't know the stats but i would guess that the recycling is probably better um Another sidetrack, though, I was just looking at Webvan as you were talking about it, trying to remind myself. Um, yeah, in total, venture capitalists invested more than $396 million in Webvan. And then the company raised an additional $375 million in an IPO in November 1999. And that valued the company at more than $4.8 billion. But the kicker is, up to that time, the company had reported cumulative revenue of $395,000. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good huh um oh, anyway sorry back to, your, back to your back to your thread well okay so yeah instacart expands to 7-eleven nationwide delivery um which is okay that's interesting doordash um is also doing it with wawa casey's general store and circle k um and uh, uh, GoPuff recently raised one and a half billion to scale up its dark convenience stores that deliver 24 hours a day. And Fridge No More has raised 15 million. And they have an interesting model in New York. They've got sort of pretty small delivery zones, um, but they're opening uh, uh, their own stores um, where they're holding, carrying around 2,000 SKUs of the most commonly purchased products, and they'll pick from those. So we're seeing an interesting twist here. 
Ina on convenience um, and convenience items and the immediate delivery of the convenience items, um, which is a point that you raised, um, how uh, culturally this might lead us not to some great places. So here you go, Instacart, DoorDash, GoFridge, or sorry, Fridge No More, GoPuff, um, are all coming after convenience here. I could see this working in cities where there's a lot of people in, you know, in a small amount of space and the, the drop-off locations are close to each other. And I guess what this is saying is that if it's there and it's available for delivery, people are going to get it delivered, right? I think yeah. so. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Fridge No More delivery folks are employees. They're not gig workers. So just wanted to clarify that. I don't know about the other, other services, but that's nice to see. Yeah. And, and so, Ina, to your point, in cities, um, this is not just a U.S. phenomena, phenomenon. Um, there are at least seven key players that are vying for dominance in the U.K., uh, most of them focused on in London, uh, with uh, Wheezy, Fancy, and Gorillas venturing outside of the, of the capital. These names are great, by the way. Um, and there are some that are uh, opening in Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, and and others. Yeah, these so, names yeah, are awesome, by the way. I don't know why I, I'm not in contact with like the London startup scene, but we got Wheezy, Fancy, Gorillas. We got Getter, DJ, Zap, Jiffy. Um, I don't like people have run out of things to call their company now, haven't they? Like, how do you come up with a name like Getter? Get here? Is that right? Get here. Yeah. Oh, I, okay. God, I didn't even figure You know, out. they pra- paid some branding agency throwing Beanie Babies oh. against the wall for four hours. I mean, maybe. Like, maybe. <laughs> oh, you know what? Okay. This makes more sense. It's a Turkish startup. Okay. It means okay. something in Turkish. There we go. As us being, well, me being an idiot. Um, but yeah, these names are great. It sounds like, it feels like 1999 all over again, doesn't it? It does. It does. We're doing all the same things. I mean, maybe things have changed. The pandemic did change a lot of things. And but, maybe... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, well, I guess like, so in the in the UK, we have a concept of the corner shop, right? Um, and then here we have like the bodega. We have the, yeah, I guess the corner, like something, something. I guess like me, I'm, am I weird in that like, I don't really ever go to like a corner shop because like there's nothing there that i want like i don't get milk i don't have i don't buy cigarettes i don't buy candy bars i don't buy potato chips i mean i'm not saying i never eat potato chips but i don't like i just am i just is, is this revealing that i'm not a normal person does everyone else pop to the corner store for like the newspaper and a pack of cigarettes and i'm just missing out here when I lived in a city, the corner store served as like my emergency go-to. So if I like ran out of something like dish soap and I needed it in a pinch, then I would go to the corner store on my way home. And that was the only function that it served. Right. It's like the single pack of toilet paper, right? Like it's like that kind of thing. Exactly. What about uh, Michael, do you go to a corner store? Like what? Cause like, well, I, you know, I, I'm thinking of this, especially because on my blog, in Manhattan, a new like corner store has opened up. It opened up just before, like, um, it, it, let's say it opened up about two months ago, maybe. 
this is still pre sort of majority vaccine kind of stuff. And, and it was very nice. Like, you know, they had done a really nice job with it. It's packed with all this convenience store kind of stuff. But I just, I kept on walking past it and I was kind of like, oh, I, I sort of want to support them as a local business. They've obviously put a lot of their savings into this. It was not a chain in any way. It's not a Dwayne Reed or anything like that. It's, this is like a family business kind of thing. And I was like, well, what, what can I buy there? And I ended up like the one thing I bought there, um, which is also terrible. I'm a terrible person. The one thing I bought there was disposable uh, recyclable cups for when we moved into the new farm and we wanted to drink some Prosecco. <laughs> and so I, I went and got the cups there, but that's the kind of thing that if I had planned ahead, I would not have bought it from there. I would have got some better, like eco-friendly something, something. Um, and that's all I could, I'm literally in the store looking around. I'm like, there's nothing I can buy here, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like New York city, Manhattan, um, you know, when I first moved to Manhattan in 2004, I had moved from San Francisco. The concept of the corner store didn't really exist in San Francisco. And I realized very quickly that the block that I lived on probably housed the same number of people as my neighborhood in San Francisco, plus the surrounding three or four neighborhoods, right? So you had these high-rise buildings that were 30 plus stories high each each level had something like 15 to 20 units and you do the math average household maybe two three people um and so i realized very quickly i was like holy cow every block has several stores several dry cleaners several you name it and that's because the density of the population was so high and then you couple that with the supermarket situation this was pre whole foods and you know i think i lived on the upper east side and we had a gristidis and you walked in and you're like oh this is disgusting i don't want to touch anything here everyone seems really grumpy they're gonna kill me if i buy the wrong thing if there's any consensus about new york food it's that gristidis sucks <laughs> you know that, okay that's really, yeah. okay good good i didn't want to uh, be rude about it but okay I'm, I'm glad that that's a, that's a fair statement, at least back then. Maybe it's better now. Um, and so I would go to the corner store to buy your staples. You'd get your, you know, whatever it was, eggs, milk, you know, single roll of toilet paper. And uh, when you're single and you're stumbling home at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, I'm not saying I necessarily did this. I might have seen it. I might have experienced it in other ways. But, you know, maybe you buy the thing of chocolate or the thing of chips because you're hungry and you just stuff a, stuff a bag full of stuff at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning and, and make your way home. So um, you're saying these stores are basically making their money on drunk people like that is the they're, they're there to catch drunk people in a moment of craving. Uh, that and the pizza, right? I mean, how many people in New York City have you guys seen walking home or walking around the neighborhood in the East Village or, or you name it neighborhood with one slice and the pros have two, right? You've got one in each hand walking home and you've got to eat one before you get home so that you can get your keys out and open the door. You're too familiar with this. I... <laughs> I'm an observant person. I, uh, I, I see uh, life for what it is. I, I, I like the way people live and I like to watch the way people live. That's all Interestingly enough, with the pizza, Domino's has been an incredible stock over the past like 
20 years. Like if you look at their growth compared to like Facebook, Amazon, all these kind of things, like Domino consistently is like the best stock to own, um, which goes back to, you know, if you want to serve lazy people with food, <laughs> like you're in a good business, if you can get the logistics right, which again, Domino's does really well. They're very they're innovative about it. They've started to test these like self-driving delivery vehicles with Ford, I think it Am I getting that right? Probably not. But like, um, yeah. And I don't know if they do this here. By the way, I love talking about Domino's because I think they're sort of a great company. Um, like they have this thing in Australia. I don't know if they have it here, but it'll show you your pizza, like a picture of your pizza just as it's been made. Do they have this here? I know you're nodding your head. I've seen some of this, but not in like not. I, I haven't experienced it personally when ordering Domino's. Right. Well, it's something that I'm inspired by and well you'll see what i'm literally inspired by it but anyway (laughs) (laughs) oh heads up everyone pay attention um so okay so then there's another article and then i i I do want to spend some time talking about kind of what this means um for uh the economy and particularly for for workers um so there was an article in The Guardian, why fast-track grocery delivery apps could soon leave supermarkets on the shelf. Um, so you've got these um, services like Instacart and DoorDash and others that work with the supermarkets. And now you've got these uh, other services like Fridge No More that are coming up. Um, and I, what I'm curious about with this, and this is kind of the, the article touches, I think, a lot of things here and touches, you know, basically the business of groceries is, as it exists today with in the UK with Tesco and in Europe with Aldi and, and Walmart, these discount shops um, and with Whole Foods even, you, you know, the margins of these shops are so low. Uh, they're these days down to something like two to three percent um, is what you're looking at as a profitable business, which, which is which is not great, which is which is better than Webvan, but um, not all that much better apparently. But you know you've got these convenience delivery apps that add this layer on. You've got these large grocery stores that are essentially real estate development businesses now. Um, that you know take up all the space. Um, you could argue unnecessarily. Um, you've got an economic structure that is unsustainable with this, and you've got a bunch of venture money that's really interested in disrupting that game. Um, first of all, you know what what does that what does that mean for the economy? You know, take aside for the moment kind of the culture of convenience and what that could mean. But if you're taking away a a vital and, and, and necessary piece of any community, whether it's a city, maybe in rural communities, it's a little bit different. Um, but in cities, for sure, uh, large cities, you've got second cities that people are moving out of places like New York City too, um, that have to build that infrastructure. And you've got these new services that are coming up and they're hiring people sometimes as gig workers, most often as gig workers, and the economics of that are different now. Um, I'm curious. I, I know what, where do you think this goes, and what are the what are the pros and cons here? If I had to predict where this goes, there's going to be 
a lot of angry people because they're doing hard work and they're working in a really demanding environment and they're putting themselves at risk, you know, because people don't want to make, you know, the safety of grocery shopping, you know, they're doing that. Um, and they're not being compensated for it because the economics just don't work out. And so then there's going to be this creation of people demanding the convenience, but then no one, you know, there's going to be angry people that, that are having to supply that demand. So I think about the sustainability of all, all of it. You know, I, I'm concerned that, you know, this is just going to create a workforce that is going to end up being or that's going to get the short end of the stick, that they're going to have to function in these environments that they're not getting benefits. They're not getting health insurance. They don't even like, you know, in some delivery circumstances, they don't even have a place to take a break or go to the bathroom. And so why are we continuing this kind of environment when we know that it's not going to work out for these employees? Yeah. I, I guess that makes me think like, you know, something similar sort of happened with Uber, right? and left where you took this entrenched system which was taxi cabs which wasn't that great really um it had some benefits in terms of like if you were a long-term cab driver in new york city you knew that there was a certain number of medallions right there's a certain number of cabs on the street you get to know the routines you know i mean no no duh like when it rains like you're gonna get lots of business all that kind of stuff it was very stable right and then uber kind of came along completely disrupted that radically and in some ways you know some of the problems for the consumer with the old system like they've gone now like i can get a car whenever i want it's very very convenient for me as a consumer but for like a driver now you know really uncertain situation like there's legislation trying to be passed in different states which recognizes drivers as more than gig workers all that kind of stuff but but i guess like to disrupt things on the consumer side we have now brought in these all these new problems around gig workers on the worker side and and so i guess i think like what what you're kind of saying i know is like what that's happening now in the grocery store world and what we're getting is we're getting companies coming in, trying to make a huge disruption on the consumer side uh, and not really caring what happens on the worker side. Um, and also like not, um, it's, it, it's like everything comes bundled up with the same package. Like if you want, you know, quick grocery delivery uh, through an app, then you get with that not saying every company, but pretty much by default, you get poor worker um, compensation. Like you get um, plastic packaging, you get maybe some other negative externalities as well. Like you, there's no free lunch here, right? And so it's, that's one thing I think is happening. I think the other thing is that, you know, you've got big companies like Walmart, um, Amazon, you know, has been around for a fair time now, but you've got companies like Walmart, Costco, et cetera, who, um, you know, traditionally have not been seen as like super innovative tech companies. Um, and so when, when, and whenever any of these things kind of happen, it's going to take them several years to kind of respond. Um, and, and the problem is also like, it wasn't that great to work at Walmart anyway on the shop floor. Like, um, it wasn't that great to work in a supermarket anyway. So these new services are not necessarily you know, 
there, there may be worse in some ways, but they're not, you know, it wasn't like the system was awesome before. And I guess like the other sort of dynamic I've heard is that um, particularly with restaurants, like um, minimum wage workers in restaurants, like quite a few of them have now moved over to be working in an Amazon warehouse or something like that. And some people prefer that Amazon warehouse experience in that like you're not relying on tips, you've got healthcare, you've got some other benefits that you weren't getting in your hospitality job. Um, and so I guess to try to sum up what I'm saying, like it wasn't great before, it seems to be temporarily, hopefully worse now because you've got lots and lots of new players. And also I think that we haven't, I mean, there's definitely, we're not in the end game. And so like over the next five to 10 years, like you would hope that some of the established companies can now adopt some of these more sort of convenient technologies for consumers while hopefully bringing with them some of the legacy of like good worker treatment um, and also inspiring new startups to come in and say like, hey, if you want to actually win in this market long-term, you probably do have to treat your employees well because it comes back and it bites you in the ass because it's it's biting Uber in the ass big time. It's biting Lyft in the ass because they always pretended to be a really friendly company, but actually do they treat the workers that different to Uber? Like, mm, you know. Um, so I'm trying not to make this into a ramble, but I think like, I, I think over the next five, 10 years, there should be competitive pressures on new entrants and big companies to think through the whole value chain and think of how they treat people, think about plastic waste, think about um, all these things and that to be a competitive advantage rather than just trying to scale like as fast as possible, which is always the default, you know? Well, I think the unfortunate thing, though, if you look past five to 10 years is the majority of these workers are going to be replaced by robots. And I think the majority of these low earning jobs, and by majority, I mean, almost all of them will be replaced by machines, um, whether throughout the entire chain, right? So I think the economics of, you know, running a large footprint store somewhere um, is probably going to go away. Um, so, you know, having that retail experience, um, I think will go away fairly quickly in some places. And in some places, you know, that'll continue maybe smaller towns and, and other kind of suburban or, or near rural hubs. Um, but certainly in cities, I can't see uh, well, why pay such large um, uh, uh, rates for real estate that produce a two to three percent margin at best um and why not build out fulfillment centers and okay so guess what robots and machines don't need toilet breaks and we don't have to pay them health care and and all of those types of things i know that sounds horrible but i think the that's where we're headed is this all roads lead to ubi then is that, is that what you're saying <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for letting me ramble anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah. And, and so, okay. So then you think about it that way now. Well, so then, you know, here, here's the thing. The pandemic was a forcing function, right? It, it made everyone look for alternatives, clever entrepreneurs and others saw the opportunity adapted um, have now seen that they've produced a service as a result of that. 
you know, I, I think those numbers, I, I don't know, maybe they would have been different, whether you would have continued online shopping if the service was really bad. Um, and it was not as good as going to the supermarket. Um, but clearly, they're onto something, there are some clever people trying to make that experience a little bit better. Now they're looking at the economics of that and saying, okay, do I have to work with a Safeway or, or what have you as a DoorDash? Or do I build my own centers of, of uh, fulfillment and others and, and you know hold these 2000 SKUs? All of a sudden, I've got all this data, which um, I'm closer to the customer than uh, Safeway or you name it supermarket is. I know what they're buying. Um, so I, in some ways, and this was the article in the Guardian, um, I've kind of flipped the tables here, but it's really turned, right? I have, I'm in a position of strength here if I'm one of these delivery services because I have the relationships with the customers. I know what they're buying. Um, I can go and, and take that information, build out and buy out my own, my own stores and leave you kind of in the dust. So, you know, these supermarkets, you know, they're done, but we'll, so then... Maybe there's an alternative path, right? Why aren't co-ops a bigger thing? Why aren't um, neighborhood uh, grocery stores that are serving a community within a community? Is there an opportunity to do that? Is there an opportunity for co-ops um, to be more meaningful within a community? What would something like that take, do you think? Well, I mean, this gets pretty close to the farm one kind of vision in a way, you know, I think that, yeah, you know, if you look at the Park Slope Co-op, very, very successful organization, right? Um, but it requires, you know, time commitment on the part of its members, which, you know, I think that might just be the thing that is like, okay, that's not convenient. It's not through an app. So I'm not going to do it, you know, for some people. So I think like, a co-op that fits sort of digital world, like app world um, in some way that that could be kind of attractive. But I, I guess like, you know, there might be a fundamental disconnect between the kind of people who want to start massive internet companies and the kind of people who are good at building grassroots community organizations. Like those two things, I'm making a sort of meshing motion with my hands right now. Like those two things, for a lot of people are, are fundamentally incompatible, I think. Um, and especially given that, you know, if you want to sort of like take over the grocery space, so to speak, the playbook right now for, for these companies that we've listed is because they're not going to figure out efficient logistics straight away. They, they, they're going to have to raise a ton of money, which means that then they're, they're going to have unprofitable operations for a long time, which is, literally what Uber has, right? Um, and so it's gonna be, um, I don't know, the way I see it playing out is like these folks raise a ton of money and then in 10 years time, we're still not even sure if they're operationally profitable because they've raised so much money that it's just not clear what is growth and what is normal operations, you know? Whereas, yeah, I think the, I, I think the exciting opportunity maybe is for companies to try to do that grassroots thing that you're talking about, try to do co-ops, uh, but, but it does require, I think, just a different method of growth. I don't, I don't think you can just buy your way to that kind of growth. It doesn't happen. What do you think, Aina? I do agree with you that they, it feels incompatible. Like when I think about the definition and the fundamentals of what a grassroots movement is, it doesn't, none of it includes big, massive growth at one point. It's 
slow growth over time because then that's more sustainable and that the people supporting the organization grow with the organization. And that that's how that's how grass move grassroots movements grow. So that feels more approachable and more sustainable for communities because then it's not such a disruption or it's not such a jolt to their everyday and, and they they can absorb it and the community can absorb it at the pace that they that is that feels palpable to them. So is the answer that you know maybe in an interim more farmers markets farmers markets finding their way to be more convenient to reach people um i mean is that is that sort of part of the answer there i'm pretty sure there is a space for taking some of that feeling of the farmers market um and making it more convenient and accessible i i don't necessarily think it's more farmers markets but i think it's more access to that kind of food but doing it in an accessible way that people who are used to ordering stuff on Grubhub or Seamless or whatever can relate to. I think there's an opportunity there. And I think it very much relates to some of the things we're trying to do at Farm One, um, given that we also want to make sure that it's essentially a zero waste experience and it's an experience which will have some positive social impact on the workers and the community that we're in. Um, we're biased, of course, but you know, yeah. I, I really strongly believe that. I think there's a big opportunity there. Yeah, yeah, obviously some of this may be a bit leading, but I am genuinely curious at scale, like how how you solve this. And some of this, you know, I think, Ina, to your point earlier, it's got to start with consumers. And if, if the impulse to buy and the impulse and the satisfaction of convenience is so strong, I mean, the, you know, it's, it's capitalism, businesses will respond accordingly. Um, how do we solve that consumer sort of piece to it, do you think? Well, I think that there's ways that you can you can do home delivery. You know, I think that hearing our members, they love that they love the convenience that we bring bike delivery, um, their their orders by bike delivery. And then they also know that it's a more sustainable option because then the employees at Farm One, they're being paid a living wage and they also still have that safety. They don't have to leave their homes to get fresh food. So I think that there are ways to do it. I think other farms with CSAs, they'll deliver those farm shares directly to people's homes as well. So I think that there are some options out there. Um, it just takes a little bit of time to find them and to seek them out you're not going to find them immediately on the fresh direct app yeah yeah well um hopefully everyone listening um has uh become a bit more thoughtful about your next order from uh instacart or doordash um it, it's an interesting space i think it's a really important one um because yeah we we all need it you know at a minimum on a weekly basis we're we're all doing this type of shopping um, but it does have some pretty broad implications, how we do it and, and where we go from here. Yeah, totally. It's just, it's something that every, you know, every few weeks there's something different. Like, you know, even if the weather changes, right, your shopping habits might change. Like if you've got people over, like grocery is the thing that just never goes away. Right. Um, so I hope that we can continue to sort of make it better. Um, but yeah, I guess we're running out of time. Ina, do you want to wrap things up for us? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for listening into the podcast. We have exciting episodes coming up that will leave you being more thoughtful about your food. 
And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at our website, farm.one, and you'll be notified each time there's a new episode. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you.